Really glad to see you this morning. Um, preach early in the service today. We're going to sing more later on. Um, we want to hear God's word um, this morning and uh, be inspired to sing as a result of that. Um, partly because the tone of the text this week is a little bit different than the tone of the text for the last several weeks. And so I want to get that right as we move into a uh, time of singing today. So do you have your Bible with you? Good. I hope you're already open to 1 Peter chapter 4 so you can follow along as Mr. Reed read a second ago. If not, get to 1 Peter chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 12 to 16. Last week we finished up our month-long look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. So much of what Reed read a second ago should be very familiar to you. We moved super slowly through that text so that we could consider each of those calls to action carefully. And we could consider what obedience to each of those commands actually looks like. We also wanted to see how each of those things related to that introductory clause about the nearness of the end and how all of those things serve the purpose, the overall purpose of glorifying God. This is going to be the last time I'm going to show you this, but I think it's helpful to look at this colorful and bulleted version of that passage. The end of all things is near. Therefore, four calls to action. Be of sound judgment and sober. Keep fervent in your love. Be hospitable and employ your gifts in serving one another. Four calls to action which all serve the purpose of glorifying God so that God may be glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Specifically, last week we zoomed in on the call to use our special gifts in service to one another. We talked about how gifts are received. That seems redundant. That seems obvious. But I wanted to be really clear about that. Gifts, gifts are received. They are not earned. We talked about how every believer in Jesus gets a gift, about how each believer is gifted in a unique way. There are no two of us that are alike, even if we may have the same general types of gifts. You may remember this. I said if so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so all have the gift of teaching, each of those gifts is going to come out differently. Even if they were to teach the exact same text, they would teach it in a little bit different way. Each of us are unique. We talked about how these gifts that God has given to us are not merely privileges, but they are ultimately responsibilities. And we talk about how the failure to use our gifts not only hurts us as individual followers of Jesus, but our failure to use our gifts hurts everyone around us in the body of Christ. We need everyone using their gifts in service to the Lord to function as a healthy body. We walked away with the principle that the word of God must be central in our ministry to one another, right? Those who speak as speaking the very oracles of God. We must be preaching and teaching the Word of God. The Word of God must be on our lips constantly, and we must rely on the power of God and not on our own abilities or energies. Maybe to say it a different way, when the people of God use the gifts of God in service to one another, we speak the Word of God in the power of God, we will see the glory of God. That's the way it works. And last week... That text in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 was super timely. That was a super timely word from the Lord as we approach the busiest and in many ways the best week of ministry in the year. Vacation Bible School takes almost 100 of you, serving in 100 unique ways. And this year, the needs were even bigger as Sunday morning, part, part of, a small part of what had me distracted last week was that Sunday morning about 8 o'clock I got a text from Kelly that said, hey, I tested positive for COVID last night and I'm going to be out for a few days of Vacation Bible School. Well, that was a, that's a huge blow um, to Vacation Bible School and pulling that whole thing off and uh, was scrambling to figure out how are we going to do this. <clears throat> so the needs were bigger 
than usual. But you stepped up. You stepped up and God showed himself strong, mighty through you. And uh, I praise the Lord for it. So I want to do this. If you helped in Vacation Bible School in any way, shape, or form, I'm talking from leading up here on the platform to to decorating a hallway with your Sunday school class. If you helped out in Vacation Bible School in any way, shape, or form, I want you to stand up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, listen, and I know for a fact that there were some of you who just didn't stand up. Um, that, that you worked and you served and you just didn't stand up. And so I want to say at a girl to the church, I have a hundred stories about people stepping up, stepping in, serving in ways they have not served before. I have a hundred stories from this week about needs being met, problems being solved before we ever even knew there was a need, before we ever even knew there was a problem. It was taken care of. And I am totally confident that there are a hundred more stories I haven't even heard of yet. And I want to tell you about one of them in particular. And I'm not going to use a name because I feel like if I start using names, I'll never stop. Uh, but there was one guy um, who, up until last Sunday night, wasn't planning to help with Vacation Bible School. In fact, had not helped with Vacation Bible School before in the past. Um, but based on the text in the morning, and then when I shared more of the need on Sunday night, this guy said, I got to help. I, I'm available. I'm willing. I have, I have gifts. I have abilities. I have energy. He has a whole lot of energy. And he said, I can, I can employ that in service to the church body in Vacation Bible School. And he came, and he was a superstar. And it was so good. And, and uh, what a joy uh, to see somebody that might, if, if things had gone as normal, if things had gone as normal like they do every year, this guy wouldn't have been involved at all. And uh, this morning, uh, he talked about what a joy it was to be involved. And uh, he, he made this gesture. He said, I'm, I'm totally hooked. I'm totally hooked on Vacation Bible School. Praise the Lord for that, right? That, that story or something like it could be repeated literally hundreds of times. The Lord is faithful. God is good to us. And we saw his power. We saw his faithfulness. We saw his glory last week in Vacation Bible School. I'm so thankful, so thankful that God brought us to chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 last week to remind us from his word with authority, like with power to remind us what we should do at Vacation Bible School, how we should do it, and why we should do it. What should we do? We should speak the word of God, and we did that. How should we do it? In the power that God supplies, and we did that. And why should we do it? So that God might be glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe he was this week in big ways, in, in special ways. Um, we are super thankful that Kelly is back um, she is well, and uh, she joined us on Wednesday, kind of behind the scenes, and then more involved on Thursday, and uh, praise the Lord for her, and praise the Lord for all of you. Um, God is good to us. I hope that you'll be here tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to see and hear more about Vacation Bible School. Well, last week's text couldn't have been more timely for us, and a big part of me hopes that this week's text is not timely for us. If you've read ahead, you'll know what I mean by that. Part of me, though, expects that it will be. Part of me expects that maybe even more so, this will be a timely word for us. Someone prayed on Wednesday night this past week, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to obey your word this week. Thank you for the opportunity to see your word come alive this week. I don't know that anybody will pray that this Wednesday night. But I do know that for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this week will definitely hold fiery trials. 
fiery ordeals. This week will definitely hold sufferings for the name of Jesus Christ. This week will definitely hold revilings, beatings, threats. For some, it will even be martyrdom this week. So as we study this word in a very comfortable and very safe place, let's not forget about them this week. So read with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. That's what we're going to cover. This is God's word. As much as last week was God's word, as much as last week was God's word for us, this is God's word for us today. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us such a clear opportunity to obey your word and see your glory this past week at Vacation Bible School. You faithfully equipped us last Sunday for what was ahead. And we trust that you will do the same thing today. Despite the ease and comfort all around us, we know that this world is full of trouble. And so we ask that you would help us to walk faithfully, walk with holiness in this world. Help us to endure with joy and glorify your name, no matter what comes. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who seem to know only trials, only sufferings, only pain. Lord, grant them grace to persevere in faith. Lord, grant them grace to continue to be bold in their proclamation of the good news. Lord, remind them, remind them in a powerful way of the promise of your presence with them now. And remind them also of their eternal home with you in heaven. Pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So right off the bat, as we study this text that has a different tone, I want you to notice the very first word in verse 12. The very first word in verse 12 is very important. Peter calls his audience beloved. He reminds them of his affection for them. Most scholars agree that this is a new section in Peter's letter. Peter's letter to the scattered chosen ones who are living as strangers and aliens all over Asia Minor. It's interesting that he starts this new section with a word of affection and a word of care for his audience. The subject that he is going to address is heavy and it is difficult, but it comes from a loving place in Pastor Peter's heart. The only other place in this letter that he uses that language is in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, Beloved, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against his soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a lot of parallel between his affection for them then and his affection for them here in chapter 4. Peter speaks with tenderness, speaks with tenderness to his 
beloved brothers and sisters about the trouble and pain that is coming their way. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. That phrase, fiery ordeal, is pretty interesting. Some people see in this phrase a direct reference to Nero's infamous practice of covering Christians with tar, hoisting them up on a spike, and then lighting them on fire to light his garden parties. Some people see in Peter's use of that language a direct reference to that. And though this phrase is eerily on point, the message is probably more general and refers to all kinds of suffering and persecution that comes into the life of the believer. Like the rest of the text makes clear, there's all kinds of sufferings. There's all kinds of revilings. There's all kinds of trouble that comes to believers. And these things were already happening to the Christians to whom Peter is writing on some level. It was happening on some level to some of them. And these things are only going to increase as time went on, we know from history. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. For your testing. Peter probably has in mind the words of Proverbs 27, 21 that says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and each is tested by the praise accorded to him. He is teaching him here, as he has elsewhere, that there is a purpose in their pain. That there is a purpose in their pain. And brothers and sisters, there is a purpose in your pain as well. Peter specifically is saying that there is a purifying and proving purpose in the pain. This pain purifies and it proves the validity of their profession of faith. He said similar things in 1 Peter chapter 1. In fact, he uses the same language in verse 6 when he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. It comes upon you for your testing to purify you as a believer in Jesus, to purify your faith and to prove that your faith is real. That's what this testing is about. It's interesting to me that he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. That's the first imperative in this text. It's the first command to be obeyed. And this has to be stated. Even in the first century, it has to be stated because we all tend to think that life should be easy. Life should be simple. Life should be smooth. We tend to think that. And I have always read this text with a bit of a tone of sarcasm or cutting kind of tone. Like, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the fiery reel comes upon you like something strange has happened. I've always read it with this little bit of a sarcastic tone as if it is just our fallen natures that think it should be easy. Karen Jobes helped, helped me see that it's not just our fallen natures that expect it to be easy. There's actually a theological component to this as well. She says, this is gold. She says, this idea that life should be smooth and easy comes from a lingering echo of life in, the, in Eden as God created it before the fall. And it is also a longing for the time when there will be no more tears, no more suffering, and no more pain. 
So, so, so part of the reason why we are surprised when trouble comes is because we're selfish and we like our own comfort. I think that's part of it. The other part of the reason why we're surprised when trouble comes is because we have an echo of the Garden of Eden before the fall when there was no trouble. When Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and their relationship with each other and their relationship with him was unhindered. And we also theologically have an expectation that there is a day coming when there will be no hindrance between our relationship with each other or our relationship with him, where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears because there's no more sin. We tend to assume that life should be easy because it should be easy. Life should be easy. And if it were not for sin, life would be easy. But as we sang a few years ago in Vacation Bible School, sin messed everything up. Maybe the most profound line from Vacation Bible School music ever. Sin messed everything up. Everything broke on that day back in Genesis chapter 3. And now, as my dad often says, nothing's easy. Nothing's easy. But there's coming a day when it will be easy. When we will be taken to our true homeland to be with the Lord forever and there will be no more struggle. That perfect garden echoes from the past and the new Jerusalem beckons from the future. But here we are. <laughs> here we are now. And this is why we must maintain our alien mindset here and now. We must maintain our alien mindset knowing that this is not our home. This place in all of its mess and all of its trouble and all of its hardship and all of its suffering, this place is not our home. Our home is not like this at all. And a day is coming when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more fire for us. For us, there will be no more fiery ordeal because we've been saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that a day of ultimate deliverance is coming. But friend, if you're here today and you are not in Christ, you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, as much as we look forward to a day of no fire, all you can expect is fire. Fire worse than any ordeal you have known on this earth. So I invite you to repent and believe in Jesus today. He is the only hope of salvation. So we have this echo from the garden. We have this beckoning from New Jerusalem. And yet we live here. And we need to hear, while we live on this earth, in this life, that suffering is not a strange thing for the Christian. It's not a strange thing. Suffering is not a surprise for the Christian. And that message is all over the Bible. I'll show you a few places where we see it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The word temptation... Trial, temptation, test, all the same word. All the same word in the original language of the New Testament. And what I want you to notice in chapter 10, verse 13 is, no temptation, no trial, no test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
It's common to be tested. It's common to be tempted. It's common to be tried. That's the expectation. Paul says it differently to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, So that no one would be, stir- be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul there is speaking about his own struggles, his own sufferings. And he says, you know that you can't be disturbed by this because we've been destined for this. This is part of the plan. And if you think it's just the epistle writers, it's just Peter, it's just Paul who speak this way, listen to Jesus in John chapter 15 as he speaks to his disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus doesn't just say that once to his disciples. He says it over and over and over, that they can expect that when they follow after him, it will be hard. That they can expect that when they follow after him, they will experience opposition, persecution, pain, and suffering. I want you to see that the message of the New Testament is that suffering is not strange for the Christian. It's not a strange thing. It's all over the scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Peter, just earlier in this letter, says, In all this, they are surprised. They, the world, are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. They're surprised that you don't act like them. And John Piper said, persecution is not strange because you are strange. You're the strange one and that's why you get persecution and that makes sense because you're not like them. You're not like them. They walk in the darkness and you walk in the light. And Jesus says the darkness hates the light. And you are the light of the world. And the darkness will hate you because of that. Because you align with him. Persecution is not strange, Piper says, because you have become strange. And the more strange you become, the more persecution you will know. Suffering and persecution are not strange things for the Christian. So this week, man, I I, I feel like a weight of responsibility in even preaching this text to you. This week... When you encounter a fiery ordeal, this week, when you suffer as a Christian, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, especially having studied this text. Don't be surprised. It's not a strange thing. Endure it with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Endure it with your eyes fixed on the home that he is preparing for you. It's not a strange thing. Don't be surprised. Look at verse 13. Peter goes on and says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, this idea of sharing in the sufferings of Christ does not mean that our suffering, uh, our persecution has atoning value like Jesus' suffering, like Jesus' death had atoning value. Rather, this is teaching us that it is because of our union with him that we suffer. It's because of our union with Christ that we suffer persecution, that we suffer this tribulation in the world. In other words, our suffering is his suffering. 
our suffering is his suffering. We see this displayed when Saul, the persecutor of the church, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when Saul's life is radically changed. Something interesting happens in verse 3 when it says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did Saul ever persecute Jesus directly? No, he persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was seeking Christians to take them off to jail and see to their deaths. The voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We see here that our suffering is Jesus' suffering because we are his body. It is because of our union with him that we suffer at the hands of the world. This verse has the second imperative, the second command to be obeyed in this text. The first command was, don't be surprised at the suffering when it comes upon you. The second command is, rejoice when the suffering comes upon you. Don't be surprised as if some strange thing is happening, but rather keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing because there is a promise of future rejoicing in glory. This seems to be one of the themes of 1 Peter. There is suffering now and glory to come. We've seen this a number of times, and if you're looking for it, you'll see even more times that the, the, the pattern... The process seems to be suffering now, glory later. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. This is going to be in a couple of weeks from the pulpit. Therefore, I exhort, exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Sufferings and glory. Those two things traveling together. He said it in chapter 1 verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Sufferings of Christ and glories to follow. That was the path for Jesus, and that will be the path for those who follow him. Sufferings unto glory. Sufferings now and glory to come. And there's an interesting dynamic happening in this verse. The question is raised, do we rejoice in our sufferings because we have a future reward? Or do we rejoice in our sufferings so that we have a future reward? Is our rejoicing in light of the reward that is certainly ours? Or is our rejoicing so that we will gain that future reward? Well, we tend to only think of the first way. Right? We tend to only think of the first way. And rightly so, because Jesus speaks this way in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. You can rejoice in your present sufferings because you know that a day is coming when you will be rewarded. But that doesn't seem to be what Peter is saying here. He's not using the word for or because. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. In other words, you rejoice now so that you may also rejoice later on. So do we rejoice in our present suffering because of the promise of future reward 
or do we rejoice in our present suffering so that we will have the future reward? And the answer is both. Yes, all of the above. And that is the way the Bible works. John MacArthur said it this way. Suffering for righteousness' sake not only refines, but even before that reveals whether people are true believers. That's the so that part. Rejoice now so that you have confidence that you will rejoice later on. It will reveal the truth of your faith as you endure with joy the suffering that is before you. Tom Schreiner says it more clearly. He says, how believers respond to suffering, in other words, is an indication of whether they truly belong to God. I would say it like this. Rejoicing in suffering is evidence that we belong to him. And belonging to him is the key to the promise of eternal joy. So, therefore, rejoice in your present suffering so that you are confident about your your eternal reward. Your rejoicing in your present suffering is productive. It's productive. It gives you confidence of the reality of your eternal reward in heaven, the eternal joy that is yours. Look at verse 14. He says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, there's an obvious connection here with the Sermon on the Mount and several other places in Jesus' teaching that we've already looked at. We see it on display big time in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is striking. Look at what happens. It says they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then they released them. So they, that is the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So these guys are beaten literally beaten and told never to speak in the name of Jesus again. And what did they do? They went away rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer like this. That's what we're talking about here, that they recognize that it's only because of their union with Christ, only because of their being united and affiliated with him, connected with him, that they are suffering this way. They were encouraged in their faith because of their suffering, and it empowered even more faithful obedience unto the Lord. They went, they kept right on, I love that, they kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. So there's a connection to this blessing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. But Peter gives us some more detail about what that blessing looks like. He says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, he gives a present promise of Jesus' presence in the midst of suffering. A present tense promise of the presence of God in your suffering. So verse 13 seemed to be really future oriented, right? The promise and the proof of future reward. But Peter here says there's also a present motivation for your suffering. The promise of the Lord's presence in the midst of your suffering. That it's not just, oh, one day it'll be different. That's true. One day it'll be different. But the other promise is, and he's with you in the midst of it. He's with you in the midst of it. Do you remember a few weeks ago in small group Bible study, we were talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they got thrown in the fiery furnace? And you remember when the king looked in, he said, how many dudes did we throw in there? We threw three dudes in, but why? There are four. There are four dudes in there, right? Do you remember this? He's with us. He's with us in our suffering. That's what Peter is saying here. Karen Job says it like this. This is a comforting word. Beloved. 
Remember, that's the tone of all this. Beloved, God has not abandoned the Christian who suffers. To the contrary, God is powerfully present in the experience of suffering for Christ. Some of you know that. Some of you have experienced that. The nearness of God in the midst of your pain because of your alignment with Jesus. And I'm telling you, in places where persecution is fierce right now, there's story after story after story. Believers being persecuted and saying, I have never felt the nearness of God more than in that intense pain. The promise that he will be near to us in our suffering will surely help us endure those fiery trials when they come, right? Like to know that he is with us, to know that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us in those moments, that'll help us through, right? It should. Verse 15 is a strange shift of gears, though. Look what he says. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That's weird to me. As I read through this passage, like that part stands out. And there are a few different approaches to it. One approach is just to say this is a statement about the realism of Peter and the early church. Like the believers in the first century were not perfect. They needed to be reminded that all suffering is not persecution. That all of their suffering is not persecution. Sometimes they get thrown into prison because they've done terrible things. And brother and sister, you don't get to call that persecution. Like if you murder someone and they throw you in prison and you're a Christian, you don't get to say, oh, this is persecution. No, it's justice. It's justice and God has given the sword to the government to do just that to you. You deserve that. That's not what Peter is talking about here. You rob a bank and go to jail, that's not persecution against you as a Christian. That is conduct unbecoming of a Christian, and you should be in jail. And you should repent. Maybe it's just realism, Peter recognizing that the church is not perfect. Other people say that this is basically a roundabout way for Peter to say to to his audience, don't do these kind of things. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't do evil. And don't meddle. Maybe we can see it that way. Do we need that here, though? I think that's what Peter's getting at. One guy I heard talking about this said, maybe what Peter is saying is just don't get caught if you do these things. Like don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. If you're a murderer, don't suffer. And the only way to suffer if you're a murderer is not to get caught murdering. Surely that's not what he's talking about, right? Probably the better way to look at this is that these four things might have been particular problems for the church that Peter is writing to as they're scattered, as they're living as exiles and strangers in a land, as they're experiencing persecution. Maybe he says, don't suffer as a murderer. If they kill your brother because he's a Christian, don't become a murderer in avenging his blood. That's not how we're going to roll. Don't suffer that way. It's not how you suffer. You don't suffer by becoming a murderer. And if they take all your stuff, don't go take somebody else's stuff. If they take all of your possessions like they did to the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews, if they plunder your goods, don't go plunder somebody else's goods to make up for it. It doesn't give you a free pass to steal because they've stolen from you. Don't be an evildoer. 
Don't give in to the pressure of being called an evildoer like we read about earlier and forsake being a good doer. We are good doers, not evildoers. And don't be a meddler. And I honestly, I'm not sure exactly what that's all about. That word doesn't exist before this. This is, this is the craziest thing. Like Peter made that word up. As far, as far as we can tell historically, Peter's made that word up, like coined that word right there. Mashed together a bunch of Greek words that means paying close attention to someone else's business. It, it, it pops up a few times after this, but not before this. Not anywhere else in the New Testament. Why, how is that a particular problem for the early church? I don't exactly know. Whichever of these options is right, Peter's point is to make sure that the suffering that we encounter is the product of doing good and not evil. And that's a message he said a few times already. Make sure that the suffering that we're enduring is the product of doing good and getting heat from the world, not doing evil and getting justice that we deserve. He said it in chapter 3, verse 17, when he said, It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. When Christians suffer for doing what is wrong, that is not persecution. That is not honorable. That's justice. When Christians suffer for doing what is right, when they endure it with joy, when they rejoice even in it, that's honorable. He said it also in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure that with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What credit is there when you do evil and suffer? None. What credit is there when you do good and suffer? Oh, you see the favor of God in that. That's what we want to see. That's the lesson that Peter is preaching here. Our suffering must be as a result of doing good and not evil. And he reinforces that with the next verse in verse 16 when he says, But if any of you suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Really interesting that Peter uses the word Christian here because we didn't start calling ourselves that. That's, that's not the name that we adopted for ourselves. That was the name that was given to us by the outsiders. We read about it in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for an entire year there. They met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And it probably came out the side of people's mouths. Right? It wasn't like, oh, they are Christians. And we respect them and we appreciate them and we love them because of the good they do all around us. No, it was probably more like, those are the Christians. Those are the Christians. They follow that Jesus guy that we don't think too much of. We see it also in Acts chapter 26. It's not a word. Christian is not a word that's often used in the Bible. We see it in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, when Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? The idea is that it's a name of shame. If anyone suffers as a Christian, it's a name of shame from the world. But we're not ashamed of that, right? Right? If they look at us and they see the way we live and they say, oh, he's a Christian. We say, that is right. You are right. That's who I am. And I'm glad you noticed. We don't feel shame 
when we are identified with Christ. Rather, we glorify God in that name because we know that is the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. We know that that name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only hope we have in this life and in the life to come. R.C. Sproul had a helpful pastoral note. At the end of his commentary on this section, he said, The hardest time to believe that God is faithful is when his hand is heavy on your back. Yet we are told that though we suffer and the pain may be excruciating, it is only for a moment and not worthy to be compared with what God has prepared for us for eternity. He is faithful. And trusting him is the only answer that I know of to the reality of suffering in this world. He is faithful. Even when life is heavy, even when it's hard, he is faithful. He is with you. And you have a home with him forever. He's with you in it, and one day he will take you from it. We can trust him. So for application today, I'm going to invite you to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And the first step in following Jesus is trusting in Jesus. Putting your tr- resting your whole weight on Jesus and what he has done for you. We talked a lot about the gospel this week in Vacation Bible School. We used this giant uh, evangelical box to talk to kids about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the separation that results. We talked about how because of our sin and because of God's holiness, we are separated from him forever and ever. And there's no way for us to come across. And we talked about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins in our place, that God made a way for the sinful man to be reconciled to the holy God by sending his own son to die in the place of sinful man, that he took our sin and suffered our death that we deserve, and then they buried him, and on the third day he rose again in victory over sin and death and hell. And the only way to cross, cross over from the place of darkness to the presence of God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We show them this picture that looks like the cross as a bridge from lostness to home. We trust in Jesus. When we walk across, we repent of our sins. We turn our back on all that darkness and we walk in Christ to the Father. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first step in following him is to trust in him. And many of you have already done that. You've been trusting him for a while. This text is calling us to follow him too. Not just to trust in him and get a ticket to heaven, but to follow him. You know that Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. He doesn't say, if anyone wants to come after me, oh, we'll skip down the yellow brick road and it'll all be easy. He never talks like that. He says, deny yourself, die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. path to glory is the path of suffering. Follow him in doing good and being hated for it. So he says, follow me, do good, and be hated for it. That's the way they treated me, that's the way they'll treat you. Follow Jesus is number one. Number two, expect suffering. Expect it. Don't be surprised. Adapt this alien mindset that says, this world is broken, this world is dark, this world hates the light, and so when I am the light and I walk in the light, they're going to hate me. It makes sense, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Expect the suffering. Number three, embrace suffering. Embrace it as a refining instrument that God uses to make you more like Jesus. How many of you can testify that the biggest growth 
in Christ-likeness in your life came from hard times. The most growth in Christ-likeness came from difficulty. I think everybody, if you've grown at all, you've grown most in difficulty. Very few people grow in Christ-likeness when everything's going their way, right? In fact, we usually fall away more when everything's going our way. Embrace suffering as an instrument that God uses to refine us and make us more like Jesus. And embrace suffering as proof that we really belong to him. Like if you can take it in the teeth from the world with joy, that's pretty good evidence you belong to Jesus. That's pretty good evidence that this world is not your home. If they take all your stuff and you let them have it with joy, that's pretty good evidence that you're not tied to this place, right? If they beat you and tell you not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore and you walk away rejoicing that you've been counted worthy and you go right on preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, that's pretty good evidence that you really belong to him. What's the proof in your life? When suffering comes, what does suffering prove of you when it comes? And then the last application is trust his promise. Trust, trust his promise of the future reward. Trust his promise that a new day is coming. And when we sing about that, let's sing about it with joy. That it won't always be like this. And let's trust his promise of present nearness. In the midst of the fire, he is with us. Not to take us out but to see us through. He is with us. He has promised to be near to us. And that'll help us as we walk the hard road. Let's stand together and pray before we sing. Oh Lord, we don't want to suffer. We don't want fiery ordeals this week. We don't want to be reviled. But we know it's inevitable and we know it's purposeful. And so we pray that you will teach us to expect it and embrace it and trust you in it. That we would truly follow Jesus in doing good and being hated and persevering with joy. God, help us as your people to walk the road that you've paved for us. And we pray for men and women and boys and girls who, who walk all alone right now. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, and only you can make them alive. And so we pray that you would do that work that only you can do. Only you can open the eyes of the blind. Only you can unstop the ears of the deaf. Only you can raise a dead man to life. And so we pray that you would do it like you did it for us. That you would open their eyes to your holiness and to their sinfulness. That you would open their eyes to Christ on the cross in their place. And oh, Father, I pray that you would grant them faith to trust in Jesus, to rest their whole weight on Jesus and grant them repentance to turn away from their sins and walk toward you in holiness. And I pray that you would save them by your grace for their good for sure and for your glory forever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.